Hi everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and the Power to Change the World. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, which was published by Random House this summer. I'm also the author of Fit Pregnancies, Ask the Labor Nurse blog. Today, I want to answer one of the questions that readers send me most often. I get emails from people all over the world with questions about pregnancy and prenatal care, birth and and parenting. And one question seems to come up about once a week, at least. It's about polyhydramnios, or high amniotic fluid levels. Here's an article I wrote a while back for Fit Pregnancy. Talia is 36 weeks pregnant, and for the last few weeks, she's been measuring large for dates. Her doctor sent her for an ultrasound, which revealed she has more amniotic fluid than some mothers do. A normal range of fluid at this stage of pregnancy is measured as between 5 and 25 centimeters or about 800 to 1,000 milliliters. If the measurement is over 25, it's called polyhydramnios, and sometimes there are increased risks for mom and baby associated with that condition. Talia is measuring 24 centimeters of fluid, yet her doctor has already told her she has polyhydramnios, and Talia is scared. Essentially, we have two questions here. One, does Talia have polyhydramnios? Two, is there something to worry about? Polyhydramnios only occurs in about 1% of pregnancies. Technically, Talia isn't in that 1% because 24 centimeters of amniotic fluid is still within normal range. Will it go higher? Maybe, but it might also go lower. The important thing is that her doctor is keeping an eye on things. The bad thing is, her doctor has freaked Talia out and she thinks bad things are happening to her and her baby. That makes me sad because at this point, Talia is normal. About 50-65% to of the time, nobody knows what causes a woman to develop polyhydramnios. The rest of the time, they can pinpoint it to one of these conditions. Birth defects involving baby's ability to swallow or kidney function. It's baby's ability to swallow and process fluid through the kidneys that regulates the amount of fluid in the uterus. Diabetes. Some moms with diabetes might have increased levels of fluid. RH incompatibility. A mismatch between mom's blood and baby's blood. Twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. When one identical twin gets too much blood flow and the other gets too little. Problems with the baby's heart rate or an infection in the baby. So let's rule a few things out for Talia. She didn't mention twins, so that's not it. Her blood type was checked early in pregnancy, and if she's RH negative, her doctor will give her a Rogam shot to make sure she and her baby won't have incompatibility problems. She didn't mention diabetes. If there's a problem with baby's heart rate, it would most likely show up on ultrasound or monitoring. She didn't mention that. Could the baby have swallowing or kidney problems or an infection? It's possible, but it's not likely. Therefore, I'm guessing Talia is in the 50 to 65% for whom there's no specific reason why she might have extra fluid. What could happen to Talia or her baby from having polyhydramnios? Well, the worst case scenario is there's an increased risk of stillbirth. In normal populations, 2 out of 1,000 babies are stillborn. With polyhydramnios, it's 4 out of 1,000. But that still means that 996 of those 1,000 are born alive. Polyhydramnios increases risks for premature rupture of membranes and or preterm labor, which could mean that Talia might deliver her baby earlier than 37 weeks. Talia is already darn close to 37 weeks right now, though, and most babies born at 37 weeks do amazingly well. 
Talia does mention that her baby is very active, which generally indicates a healthy baby. Polyhydramnio sometimes means that babies can wiggle their way into a weird birthing position. Instead of assuming the normal late pregnancy, head down, ready to be born position, polyhydramnios increases risks for breach or transverse positions, which increase chances for C-section. During labor itself, there's an increased risk the umbilical cord could get pinched or pushed out before the baby, which can be very dangerous. Since Talia will be delivering in a hospital, she'll be monitored and her healthcare providers will take measures to make sure her baby is safe. There's also increased risk for placental abruption, which means the placenta could separate before the baby is born, and increased risk for postpartum hemorrhage. Again, dangerous, but Talia's medical team will be on the lookout and will take care of her. While these all sound scary, and they're all possible when mom has polyhydramnios, they're also very unlikely. Does Talia have reason to be scared? Not at all. At this point, Talia doesn't actually have polyhydramnios. Her doctor is just worried she might develop it. Chances are far better she won't develop it at all. My thoughts for Talia are these. It's natural to go to fear land when one hears unsettling possibilities, but it's a mighty poor place to spend the end of your pregnancy. If you asked me what the chances are that everything will be okay, my answer is this. Really, really, really good. Your baby is close to term, your amniotic fluid is still in normal range, and you're being taken care of by a trained healthcare team that knows what to do. Talia, I think you're going to be just fine. Here are just a few emails that have come in lately. Jessica asks, um, I just read your article. My fluid level is 21. They seem to not be too worried, but it is over their 20 mark of being a little high. What should I do? Should I worry? Raya asks, I'm 38 weeks pregnant and my doctor wants to induce labor in a couple of weeks because he says I have abnormally high amniotic fluid. My baby seems healthy and all ultrasounds check out fine. My non-stress test seems good too. What should my concerns be? So clearly, the information I provided in my article isn't quite enough to reassure these readers, so I'd like to get my friend and colleague, Karen Parker, on the line. Karen is a certified nurse midwife who's been in the business of delivering healthy babies for decades. She works in Portland, Oregon, and shares her practice with several OBGYNs and other midwives. Let's get her on the phone and see what she has to say about polyhydramnios and the best ways to manage care. So Karen, tell me how long it's been and how many babies do you think you've delivered now? Well, um, just this recent October uh, began uh, 41 years of sitting at the bedside of, of women having babies. And um, I am asked all the time by my patients how many babies I've delivered. And, you know, I stopped counting so many years ago. And um, But I did try to do the math one time. And let's just say safely that at this point I have delivered a small city. That's a lot of babies. I, I have no idea how many babies I've been in on either. Mm -hmm. you know? And then, and you spent some time, you know, be, as a labor nurse too, which just mm -hmm. is an exponential number of births that you attend, you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's pretty intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we're talking about today on this podcast is polyhydramnios. And I get emails literally every week from people all around the world who are desperately concerned about this. Um, 
some, you know, I got a letter this week from Pakistan, another one from Kolkata. I got several from the United States. So all of a sudden, this subject is on people's minds. And um, I think I sent you the link to an article I wrote a long time ago for Fit Pregnancy Magazine about, you know, the basics of, of what polyhydramnios is, what the measurement parameters are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the risks associated with this condition are actually pretty rare. Um, but people are either really worried about something bad happening to their baby because of it, or what I get just as much is they're worried they're being overtreated for a condition that's not that big a deal. Um, so I want to read you one of these emails right now and just then we'll talk about it. It comes from Leah who says, I'm currently 34 weeks and five days pregnant. Um, this week I had an ultrasound and biophysical profile that showed my fluid level was at 26 centimeters, which the nurse practitioner said was slightly elevated and they want to come, want me to come back in for another ultrasound um, next week. She said, even if the level continues to go up, they wouldn't even consider inducing me to 39 weeks, and that would only be if my level was really high. I have a short torso, started my pregnancy already overweight. I've gained 22 pounds at this point. My blood pressure looks great. I haven't been swelling. I passed my gestational diabetes test at 29 weeks, and our baby has been moving normally hiccuping and practice breathing on the last ultrasound. He scored great on the biophysical profile. I am RH negative. He has been head down since my 29 week ultrasound. It's my understanding they don't even do anything unless your fluid level is really elevated and they just want to monitor me. However, I'm concerned that they will want to do weekly ultrasounds. I'm not sure that this is a good idea. I've already had five ultrasounds this pregnancy. The one Next week will be the 6th, and I'm not convinced it's good for our son to have weekly ultrasounds until he is born. On top of that, although I have insurance, the cost is quite prohibitive for me. And considering there isn't anything they can do for me anyways, I'm kind of feeling I'm being forced into doing these tests that won't actually show anything, but don't feel like I have a choice in the matter. I know you don't know me and can't give me really much advice. But I was hoping maybe you could shed some light on this topic for me. I don't feel like my doctor and nurses are listening to me, and I need someone else's opinion. What do you think, Karen? Yeah, you said she was 35 weeks. Um, I think, yeah. 30, yeah. Okay, 35, 35 weeks. weeks. Because the, the fluid volume peaks about 35 weeks, okay? So, you know, it can build throughout the pregnancy. And somewhere between 34 and 35 weeks, it's, it's, it kind of peaks, and then it actually starts to go down a wee bit. When she tells me, or when you say that she's at 30 or 25 centimeters of fluid, that doesn't worry me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that, you know, right off the bat, it does not give me, you know, great concern, especially, um, you know, with other information that's been provided. Um, I think as long as she has a... Um, good um, uh, fetal anatomy study, which is reassuring in that there's no fetal anomalies that could be uh, contributing to it, then, you know, monitoring truly is all that's necessary. And, and you know, I, I understand her concern about weekly. Um, if, if there's nothing, if there's no other um, adjunct uh, worries or concerns, then there's a part of me that thinks, well, that, that might be, that might be, um, a, a little more frequent than maybe would be necessary. I think they wanted to know what is it rising and how fast and 
and how worrisome is it, but she's not symptomatic and she doesn't have any uh, contributing um, factors. So, I, you know, as a midwife, I guess I would, I would just say, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she's short and, and round and, and she's got a lot of fluid and it'll probably settle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how often do you see polyhydramnios as, as a big, big deal? Well, you know, 40% of the time, there's no reason for it. You right. know, that we call it idiopathic. Right. And, and, and so when you, when, and those are the ones I see because uh, quite frankly, when it's uh, that when there are um, associated diagnoses such as severe uncontrolled uh, diabetes for the woman or or uh, congenital anomalies or something like that you know as a midwife those those don't tend to be in my wheelhouse that's uh, those are usually managed by the obstetrician or the maternal fetal medicine folks right and so who as a midwife what I see is more the idiopathic or the no rhyme or reason just a bunch of fluid yeah and and so uh, you know, I watch it. I, I'll get um, an occasional check-in as as to uh, where the fluid is going. As soon as I see it level off, then I I just leave it be. So I I think you asked me how often do I see it? Yeah, how often do you see it that it actually turns out to be a problem? Um, I can tell you in actual practice where it really becomes where it is an actual problem more than anything is when I do know that a woman has a generous amount of fluid such as the gal that would just you know say she was in labor and she had 25 centimeters of fluid and she comes in and she's in labor well if the baby's head is high then it doesn't um, drop down into the pelvis and act like a little cork Mm -hmm. Um, and and when the head is if the head is high it's not um, filling up the, the, the opening in the pelvis and what that means is that then when the fluid releases, whether artificially or naturally, um, there can be quite a rush of fluid down because it's, it's generous in proportion. And so that in its, uh, in the mechanics of that can wash down the cord and the head at the same time. Uh, when the head is already down in the pelvis, acting like a little cork, then when the fluid um, releases, it, it's, um, it's not so worrisome. Yeah. So when I'm checking her in that last month and I go, well, that head's still floating up there pretty high, I'm going to have a conversation with that mama and say, Here's, this is the package of you. This is, how you. this is how you present. Now when you go home today, I want you to know that the head's not, not filling up the pelvic brim. And so were you to have a water break first, you have to come right in. And that's because it, that danger exists for a prolapse cord. Mm-hmm. And it, you can't candy coat it. It just is. And, and so I make sure that she understands uh, what that means. And, and I would say of all the things, that's, that's the greatest, that's one of the greater concerns. So um, before I got you on the phone, I talked a little bit about, you know, that concern of the, the cord coming out before the head. And that's what um, you're talking about with prolapsed cord. Just want to exactly. make sure that everybody knows what we're talking about. That's exactly correct. It's just that usually it's up up there and all kind of curled up around with you know around the baby in you know between its arms and around its belly button, and that's where it usually hangs out. Mm-hmm. And so for it to have, there's a you know if there's a little force that kind of draws it down alongside the baby's head or brings it, bringing it out even in front of the baby's head then that becomes more problematic because it can get compressed between the 
side of the baby's head and uh, or the top of it and, and the bones of the pelvis. And that it's like pinching off the cord. And yeah. then the baby, it gets a little trouble for the baby. Yeah, it reduces circulation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So people write me all the time about, you know, their 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 doctor says that they've got polyhydramnios um, and that they're going to do a um, an induction. And oftentimes uh-huh. the induction is scheduled for several weeks out. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? You mean in several weeks out, meaning uh, prior to the due date? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, like like um, just this week, I got an email from some woman who was 38 weeks, and her doctor said that she had um, marginal polyhydramnios. She didn't mm-hmm. give she didn't give me the number, mm-hmm. and that um, she had to have a, an induction uh, the next week at 39 weeks, and mm-hmm. um, she didn't want that. She wanted to just mm-hmm. have a spontaneous labor. So, mm-hmm. what do you think about that as a way to manage it? Well, the standard of care is that um, mild to moderate, which is, uh, you know, mild to moderate is between 25 centimeters of fluid and 35 centimeters of fluid. And the standard of care is to induce at 39 to 38, uh, 39 to 40 weeks of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. If it's severe, which is greater than 35 centimeters of fluid, then indu- induction at 37 weeks. Sometimes, in very severe cases, they'll induce as early as 30, 34 weeks, mm-hmm. but, but that's very, very unco- uncommon. But, you know, so I would say that her, her obstetrician is actually, or her care provider is, you know, is, is uh, reflecting the standard of care. So then there's a few topics that come up with that. Um, one is why would induction be a better option than a spontaneous labor? And I know the answer, but I want you to explain it. And then another <laughs> one is um, if the patient, or the mother, doesn't want to go with um, the induction route, what are her options? So let's start with the first. Why is induction considered a better, a better option? Well, they don't, I mean, they don't want it to get worse, and they want a controlled environment. And, um, and I mean, and they don't, it, it, there, there can always be some sort of anomaly that's unknown. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's a part of it. And they want a controlled environment. And, um, you know, the, the problems with the mama are, of course, that, you know, the babies could, it could be the big baby, cord prolapse, you know, all the things that are on that list. And they essentially just, you know, don't want to have a, um, uh, don't want to wait any longer in the event that there's some fetal anomaly that's not detected. Right. And, um, and then you said, what was it? Um, so I've got a, you know, a reader who, she doesn't want to go with an induction. She wants a spontaneous labor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is something that comes up all the time when women have, a dispute or a concern with their provider about the care plan. Mm-hmm. And very few women are actually brave enough to tell their provider, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I get emails all the time from women who are looking for ways to negotiate that. Sure. What do you think of that? What, what's your advice? Well, I think that, if, you know, I get that all the time too. I mean, I will say this is the standard of care. This is a recommendation. And my patient will say, I appreciate that, but I don't. I don't want to do it. So it's, I, mean, I think it's across the board. There's plenty of times that a woman just 
doesn't feel that, you know, what what's the reason that her provider is giving her is satisfies her desire to have a, a natural or unmedicated or un, un, um, uh, non-induced delivery. And, it, you know, it's, it's a tough call, Jamie, because uh, there are times when I think a, a woman makes a very, um, she allows the desire to have her experience and the management of her experience to trump or or uh, um, triumph over, you know, whatever is, you know, possibly being recommended in the best interest of the baby. Yeah. Now, having said that, uh, as a woman who's had babies, I still would, you know, trust my own instincts as well. And if somebody's telling me, you know, that this is what they want to do, but it doesn't resonate with what I think is best, I'm the mama. I get to say. Yeah. It's it's my body, it's my baby, and I can and I think you can get she can get a long ways by saying I I respect that that's your opinion um and how can we buy another week uh, as safely as possible? Right. Because I'd like to wait another week. Right. And I but I'm hearing you. She needs to acknowledge to the provider, I'm hearing you and I hear your reasons. I still would like to have another week. This comes up for me all the time when somebody's post dates. And, uh, and it's the recommendation in standard of care is to deliver prior to 34, or, uh, 42 weeks. And I will have women say, I hear you and I don't want induction. Yeah. And then, you know, and then I will say, all right, then the best that we can do is at least increase our fetal surveillance and do biophysical profiles every three days or non-stress tests and that sort of thing. So her provider perhaps can outline a plan that will at least... Uh, buy some more reassurance, yeah. and I think that's acceptable. I think that's an acceptable uh, plan. I if think she, so too. I, she, I think that a lot of times it's not a matter necessarily of women wanting to protect their own birth experience, but an erosion of trust that has yes. happened across the board in the last ten years, or you know longer. I do think that's true, but I have to say, as a midwife, I feel like. I, I invest deeply throughout the childbirth, throughout the, the pregnancy, in making sure that we have a good, a good uh, communication and trust. Mm-hmm. And I, I still get that pushback to me. I know. Even though I know that they trust me really well, I will still get that same pushback at yeah. times when I say, "Okay, we need to, we need to invite this baby out." And and it's um, uh, so even with trust. I, there are still some women, and I want them all to really think about, okay, this, I, I recognize and respect how deeply you want to uh, have that natural experience, but, but, but it's, uh, I, w- I really want them to question how much is that driving the boat, right. so to speak. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, a big part of the reason why I wanted you on this call is because you are a midwife, and mm-hmm. you're going to give the you know, somewhat of the the less interventive, absolutely, um, yeah, mm-hmm. perspective, which is really important. Yeah, and but you know, I'm still. I mean, good care is good care, right? And whether you're a midwife, an obstetrician, or a perinatologist, you know, the standard of good care exists. Now, it's it's there, and it's a guideline, but it's not an absolute. Mm-hmm. And and each one of us is an individual. Each experience, each birth, each baby, each tummy. You know, and so and, and and so we have to look at each person individually. You know, I can look at a woman who's going over her due date, 
and I can say, I, I understand how you don't want to have this, but each, as long, the more we get away from it, then when we get that labor, then maybe now the baby won't tolerate it. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's very, so I'm thinking so far down the road and she's thinking more right now. Yeah. 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 It's a difficult position. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Well, what else do you think that listeners need to know about polyhydramnios? I think the um, I think there's a couple of things. As a pregnant woman, you may when you have polyhydramnios, you may not feel the baby move as much, and that's not because it's not moving. It could be disco roller skating in there, and <laughs> and you wouldn't sometimes feel it, you know, yeah. because um, because there's that 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 good cushion, you know, the the fluid. The extra fluid, think about the positive things of, of, you know, what it's doing for you and how it protects your baby and from trauma and cushions the cord and the antibacterial properties to help protect against protection and, and the nutrients. I mean, it's, it's, it's good stuff, yeah. that amniotic fluid. Yeah. And so, you know, don't, you know, don't forget that positivity about it. But the most important thing I say to my patients who have this generosity of fluid is that as the mama, you, you have to just recognize this is the package that this baby comes in. And so, yes, you've got to pay attention to a couple of things. If your water breaks and you're at home, get yourself right into the hospital. If you feel anything between your knees like, uh, or anything dangling out of your vagina, like the cord, get into a knee chest position and call 911. That means high knee right up in the air and face on the floor um, like you're kneeling on the floor and put that cord right back up in there. Now that sounds dramatic and that is really not likely to happen. But this conversation I'm having with you, I look her right in the eye and she's got to hear me say it. Yeah. Because if she's the 1% of person that it occurs to and this one tiny piece of life-saving information uh, was actually verbalized to her, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. So I, you know, it's like, okay, so sad, can't candy coat it. You just have to hear it. Now, do I think it's going to happen? Absolutely not. Yeah. But you have to hear and you've got, just got to know. And then you, you know, so if your water breaks, you come on into the hospital and we're going to listen uh, to that baby and make sure that head has settled down in there and there's no cord in the way. And that's the most important thing that she needs to know. Yeah. That and the fact that she may not feel as many movements, which might be a little bit unnerving and, and more difficult for, for her to gain those reassurances. Yeah, yeah. So in my book, I write a lot about the difference between having a fear-based pregnancy and having a well-based pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And given this specific topic, which mm -hmm. tends to be presented in a very um, fear-based way, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know what I just said to you about here's the here's the piece, the most important piece of information that you need to hear. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that to make her fearful. Mm -hmm. And I think things can be said just straightforwardly and honestly. Mm -hmm. And if you had a child that had a tendency to choke, would you take CPR? Absolutely. Yeah. No question in your mind. And is he going to choke? Probably not. But if he might choke, you're going to want to know. And so you can't, you can't pretend that that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not trying to, to encourage um, 
compliance based on fear. But I do feel that it is fair to talk to women intelligently, straightforwardly, without candy coating, and say, Here's, here are the facts. And you, and you, as the pregnant woman, she's got to be grown up enough to hear it. And then say, okay, this, this is what i got to pay attention to. Not likely to happen, but good to know. Yeah. And, and, I, and I guess that's, you know, how I deliver it, you know. And I, I agree. I don't, I don't try to, like, um, going back to using the example of inducing somebody, I don't try to say, well, all these foul things can happen. I think, here's why I recommend induction. And I'm going to lay it out. And then here are your choices. And here are, um, here are, here's the consequence of not doing that. And yet also, you know, and that includes the goodness of you're going into labor spontaneously. Right. And so it's, I guess, I guess I just believe in eyes open wide and, and being just honest about things as opposed to manipulative. And, and I do know that it exists out there in the profession and yeah. I'm afraid I don't agree with it, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Karen, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Oh, good. I'm glad yeah. I could help. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. My guest today was Karen Parker, certified nurse midwife in Portland, Oregon. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Power podcast is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere books are sold. You can see more of my work on my website, jeanfaulkner.com. If you have questions, email me at gene at jeanfaulkner.com. Thanks for joining me on Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Power podcast. Please subscribe, share, leave a rating on iTunes if you feel like it. And thanks for joining me. Let's keep talking.